Hey guys, welcome to the Tales of Moxie podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Lee, and I'm so glad that you're here. I created this podcast with the simple desire of wanting women to have a place to share their stories. Our stories are so powerful, and God's fingerprints are evident throughout them all. So each week, I sit down with another woman who is brave enough to share her story with us. We talk all the things with no judgment. While each story is unique to the person telling it, I find that I see myself in all of them, and I'm sure that you will too. Welcome to this week's episode of Tales of Moxie. This week, I got to sit down with Hillary Yancey. She is an author, a philosopher, a wife, and a mother of two, and she is incredible. She wrote the book, Forgiving God, all about her pregnancy and the struggles that she had with coming to terms with the condition that her son, Jack, was diagnosed with. Listen in and enjoy because this one answers some really tough questions about who God is and about who we are as parents and who we are as children of the Father. This was just a really neat and deep episode. And if you want to get in touch with Hillary Yancey, you can find her on Instagram or you can go to her website at www.hillaryyancey.com. I encourage you to check it out because she is an amazing philosopher, amazing author, and she really challenges us to think about life's big questions. So settle in and enjoy listening. So, Hillary, welcome to Tales of Moxie. We're so excited to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. This is great. We, I know it's late for you. You have two little ones, right? I do, yes. <laughs> she's meeting with us after like nine o'clock at night over there. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I feel like I'm remembering the days when I was in college and unmarried and childless and nine o'clock <laughs> was the beginning of the night not the end <laughs> all right my husband tells me that all the time he's like what happened to us 9 30 and I'm like all right so should we start getting to yes. the bedroom? <laughs> um, well Hillary if you don't mind just kind of introducing your story a little bit for the people that haven't read forgiving God and just a little bit about yourself and and the journey that you've walked and I'd love to just jump right in after that yeah okay I would love to so let's see um I am Hillary I am a 28, I think. Is that, I feel like you lose count of your age after 25. Um, I'm a 28 year old grad student in philosophy. I live in Waco, Texas with my husband and our two kids. And the story of forgiving God emerged really out of the first pregnancy with my son, Jack, that we had. And the complete surprise it was to me, just like you were describing, of the world that the NICU is. I had no idea at all what having a child who was complicated, who had more complicated needs was going to mean, and I never expected that to be a part of my life. So I got pregnant in January, my second semester of grad school, Mm -hmm. and in, in a beautifully, you know, innocent way, we thought this is going to be easy. I mean, not easy, but you know, it's going to be straightforward. We know what it's like to have a kid. I've babysat and I have siblings. And then around 20 weeks, uh, we got a follow-up phone call after the ultrasound where they told us the gender um, that we were having a son. And the nurse said, the ultrasound shows that your son has cleft lip and palate. And do you know what that is? And I was sort of like, well, yeah. I mean, I've seen videos and I've heard of it before. Um, I particularly remember seeing those videos of uh, 
you know, Operation Smile that were about uh, giving cleft palate surgery, cleft lip surgery uh, to kids in the developing world. But that felt really foreign to my experience. I didn't know anyone personally who'd had that. So then she sent me to a follow-up ultrasound. And I remember really distinctly on the drive down to the special OBGYN, the maternal fetal medicine specialist, convincing, I don't know if it was convincing myself, I don't know if it was prayer, I don't know if it was both, that, that what was going to happen was they were going to say, oh, it was, it was a mistake. It was a blip on the ultrasound and everything's fine. Go back to your normal pregnancy. That's not what they said. Uh, our doctor, who was wonderful in his very quiet, thoughtful way, said, there's a little bit more we need to talk about. We need to talk about uh, your son is missing his right eye. He's missing his right external ear. It looks like they didn't grow at all. Um, it, uh, at that time, the, uh, it wasn't clear what was going on with his jaw. It was just that on an ultrasound, the chin, they take measurements of the chin and they were measuring small. And so the doctor says, well, I'm not entirely sure what, what's going on. It's kind of borderline, but, um, we'll probably need to have the NICU team present just in case, um, at birth. And it was like the bottom fell out of the pregnancy. We were suddenly classified as high risk. I had an ultrasound every month. Um, we did a fetal MRI to kind of get a better sense of what was going on. I, uh, we were induced. So he was, Jack was full term, but we were induced. And I remember thinking, this is so crowded. I and mean, we had a team of NICU doctors there and um, my doctor. And it's just, I remember thinking it's so different than what I had kind of pictured in my head that birth would be like that, that glorious moment where you put your baby to your chest for the first time. And for me, it was, he was born and he needed help breathing right away. And so the first picture of me, my favorite picture of me probably in the world, um, I'm holding him my first moment and you can see this purple gloved hand of the respiratory therapist who is helping him breathe wow. and at first I mean it still kind of makes me cry but at first I really resented that because it seemed like a symbol of how helpless I was as his mom mm -hmm. and now uh, whenever I look at it I think isn't that beautiful that God provided the person who was needed mm -hmm. at the time so that my son would have air in his lungs, that, that there is such a thing as the NICU. Um, he was there for about six weeks. He had surgery around three weeks old for a tracheostomy tube um, and a G button because his jaw abnormalities make it hard for him to eat and or eat by mouth i should say and then it makes it hard for him to sleep safely on his back when he was just born he would kind of get into a position where his tongue would roll back into his airway mm -hmm. and he would start to be in distress so we got the trach as a way to secure his breathing mm. and that's what the book's about that yeah. story uh i i can't i i can still relate to that feeling of the whole team in the room. I remember having, mm -hmm. I feel like this was one of my first lessons of I'm not in control in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, because 
I was someone who researches a lot and I had a birth plan, like to a T. Yeah. Like, oh, wait, mm, these four people that are going to be in the corner are not following my birth plan. <laughs> 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 they don't care what my birth plan is. And it, yeah. it literally, I, I learned real fast. This was not in my control. This was not how I saw in movies. This was not how other women were going to describe their stories to me. This was our unique story that included all these people that I, some I got to know and some I never saw again. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was so different and unique. How was your, I know you had a period of time that kind of led up to trying to accept that. Mm -hmm. In the book, you talk about how you believed throughout the pregnancy that he would be healed. How was that moment in the room when you gave birth? Was that because did you believe all the way up until in being induced that he would be healed or when did that start to come where you accepted like this might be the way that it is oh gosh I don't know um I remember really distinctly the night before um we we went to induced and to have Jack, I was sitting on the front porch of our house and I was praying and I sort of said this is it this is it if you haven't already done it now would be a great time, Jesus. Like it would be really good if right now you just did this work that at this point only you can do. I didn't sleep well. And, you know, it's easy for me in retrospect to think, oh, maybe that's the moment where I started to grapple with, is Jesus even speaking anymore? Is he going to do something? What's Mm going to actually happen? But I think the truth is holding him for the first time and looking at him was the moment that I accepted that this was who Jack was. Uh, I remember I didn't see him first. My husband did. And Preston walked over and he cut the umbilical cord and he came back around as they were sort of getting the temporary breathing tube set up. He couldn't be there for that. And I looked over at him and really quietly, I don't even, I didn't say anything. He just shook his head and said, you know, he's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling like my whole being was kind of suspended in waiting to, to both see this thing that hadn't come to pass, but then also to see this beauty that had just been promised to me. And I don't know, I think I went to bed that first night And, you know, if you've ever been a NICU parent, you will know this, that you, you go to a different space than your kid and it's devastating. Um, And I was lying there kind of trying to sleep and you're both glad that you're alone because it's quiet and you can sleep. And you're also feeling like a whole part of you has just evacuated your body and you can't, you need to get there and you can't. I remember trying to fall asleep and I said something to my husband, like he, he wouldn't be Jack without this. Mm. Right. And my husband said, yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be Jack if he looked different. And I think there was a real grace in that moment of acceptance that it wasn't a moment of God didn't do the thing I expected God to do, but this is the person God gave me. God didn't give me someone else. Um, And I feel like 
it's a real tension. It's still a tension I struggle with between the acceptance of this is who my son is and just with meeting the reality of his person mm-hmm. and the, the somewhat independent conversation of I asked you to do something and you didn't do it. And I asked you for something that's pretty good. Like it's not a selfish thing to want your kids to thrive and to be healthy and to be safe and to come into the world as protected as possible. Uh, And so I feel like in a way that first night there were, there were sort of two moments. There's the God didn't do something I expected and there's the, this is what God has given. I, I have two questions, but I'll start with, how did you come to a point of reconciling that God is still good, even though this might not seem like a good thing right now, especially in the beginning moments where you don't yet know how to you know, work with everything that he has and what to expect moving forward and how you haven't settled in or adjusted to your new normal. How do you how do you reconcile that, that he is a good God, but this doesn't seem good right now? I mean, I didn't think God was good for a while there. I like, I think I, I leaned heavily on if this, I don't know if this will make sense, but I think there was a way in which other people held that belief for me, like mm-hmm. other family, other friends, other Christians held for me the belief that God is good. And I worked with the confrontation of what you are doing to my kid and to my family and to my life is not good. Mm. And I feel like that's a real gift of the church and of the community of believers that we, I think we are able to believe for each other when stuff happens that seems to conflict with what we know to be true. Mm-hmm. And so Uh, For a while there, I told God he wasn't good. I told God that he was a lot of things, I mean, that God is not, uh, but but in the honesty of my anger, um, I think I said a lot of, if you're good, you'll still do this. You'll still protect Jack from this, or almost holding out to God different moments where I thought he could prove back to me something of his goodness. And I, in a way, I think all that changed and everything that changed was that when we finally took Jack home, Jack is the goodness of God made manifest in my life. Mm-hmm. And eventually I, I quieted down enough to notice how good Jack was, to notice how remarkable and how beautiful and how wrapped up in his tiny little self was not an not an answer in an easy way to either the question of suffering or the question of why God does things that are hard or challenging, but, but here was the goodness of God. Mm -hmm. And it had to just, I think at this point in my life, it stands alongside the trial and the suffering and the difficulty. And they almost live in this kind of harmony and sometimes it's a tension, but yeah, I don't know if that's a good answer to your question. It, it's a good question. I, in a way, don't feel like when I was in the NICU, I, I necessarily had eyes to see God's goodness all the time. But I, I think there's a real value to the way in which um, 
when we remember stories, we take the time or we should take the time to remember God's provision in them. Mm-hmm. So one of the things my husband and I do right around the time of Jack's birthday almost every year is we find ourselves saying something like, can you believe it was three years ago, two years ago, whatever, mm-hmm. we were in the NICU. And we now say things like, God gave us the social worker who worked so hard to help us get all of the paperwork and applications for Medicaid and applications for funding and all of our financial things in order. And God sent this particular doctor who has cared for Jack in a way that is just remarkable from start to finish, or God sent us this nurse whose words at this time changed our mind about the trach and got, you know, to see those people as manifestations like Jack is of the goodness of God. I see now when I tell the story back and I think that's, that's how I'm making sense of it going forward. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's beautiful too. I love hearing you say that other people kind of believed for you. Cause I think of the friends that brought, you know, that lowered their friend in on the mat and thinking like mm-hmm. people do that. They carry us to Jesus in so many moments. And I've had people do that in my life where I didn't even realize that's what was happening, but I came out on the mm-hmm. other side and was like, Oh, you know, your calling and texting every day is what carried me through that mm-hmm. season of my life where, like you said, I was struggling with, I believe in you, but I'm mad at you. And in mm-hmm. trying to realize that took me a while too, that God's big enough to handle my, my anger towards him. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he, he can handle that. But I had to come to a place where it was like, okay, I'm mad and I'm going to say I'm mad and I'm going to trust that you're still going to be there. Yeah. Um, my second question in all of that, um, is now that you're a parent in the, the struggles that you've had as, as well as, like you said, the beauty that you've seen and the way that they come up alongside of that, each other, what do you feel like you've learned about God as the perfect parent through this experience? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think the thing that surprises me the most is the kind of attention that God must be paying to us because the way that I parent best and I don't parent best all like every day by any means, <laughs> but when I am parenting well, when I'm parenting at my best, it is because I am paying attention mm-hmm. to my kids. I'm noticing things about them. I am engaged in their world. I am not just willing, but eager to hear them tell me the same story 30 times or read the same book 30 times because their experience of delight in that thing is a source of delight to me. Mm -hmm. And so it strikes me that how much more, and often we don't, don't think of God as having that kind of, of delight in us. Mm -hmm. I mean, we talk about it sometimes and obviously there's a strong, theme throughout all of scripture that this is how God sees us. But to think God makes so much of me that he watches me do things with this kind of delight, that he is this interested in what I think. And I think that's part of what ultimately turned the the tide for me to be able to understand the wideness of God's mercy in being able to 
deal with my anger and make space for it is because good parents get down on their hands and knees and say, you seem really angry. Tell me about it. Yeah. And it's not, it's not like it's going to change my mind about something necessarily. That's not why I'm asking my son or my daughter. I mean, my daughter's one. She really can't tell me a whole lot though. She <laughs> is very expressive about her. <laughs> um, I ask the question because what I'm communicating is it matters to be with you. It matters to be with you when you feel these things. It matters for you to know I listen to it. I take it seriously. And so I don't think God invites us to be angry with God just because, oh, maybe there's a chance we're going to change God's mind. I don't, I don't think it works that way. But God's that invested in our whole life. God wants to be with us when we're angry. God wants to understand that and have us explain it and have, and come alongside us and be present in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did not, I struggled a lot with knowing how to even express anger towards God. And I think the title for the book ended up coming from, I believe the Holy Spirit, but I thought of it as this is the thing I've, I've sort of, both learned about the character of God that he's forgiving, but also this kind of activity I've been doing of trying to restore my relationship with God and make things right again after they felt so fractured and broken in the NICU. And it was in in that space that I think the parenting life helped me understand how that would be possible. Mm, it's so neat because in those moments, those in-between periods, those wilderness moments where you're in chaos in your life, but your heart's like in the wilderness, right? And mm-hmm. you're trying to come out of it. But those moments are the most precious. I was talking to a woman the other day and she was telling me like, I get it. We have to go through wilderness, but I just don't see what's happening. And it's like, we don't, we don't see it at those moments. But now on the other side, especially with reading your book, like you can see the progression where it's mm-hmm. Who was Hillary before this experience that God pulled through and was like, okay, it's not about what you're doing. It's not about what you're going to achieve. It's about who you're becoming, yeah. you know, and that, that whole journey and that walk, like you said, of reconciling the relationship. So now learning and getting to know him in a whole different light, mm-hmm. like getting to see a side of him that a lot of us haven't seen and mm-hmm. haven't had to grapple with maybe before. How was, how was writing this book and putting these emotions because there were so many times in here where I was like, Oh my gosh, that's exactly what I felt. But I've never said that to anyone. (laughs) I honestly, like I was, I thought I even went to my husband one time and was like, you know, that night when I was, didn't want to say this, this is what I was feeling. Cause I just, I didn't have the words or if I did have the words, I was like, I don't know if anyone's going to want to hear me say this. Right. Cause I'm supposed to put this armor on of like, everything's good. I'm a good mom. And I'm, I don't want to say that I'm like, grieving my old life in a way, but I don't know how to connect them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, How was writing this and then releasing it to the world and knowing that like these thoughts and these, these intimate moments with yourself and God were now out there. Weird. Still (laughs) weird. (laughs) Um, The writing of it was, to be honest, a totally chaotic, it's, I didn't put a whole lot of it in the book itself, but the way I wrote this book was in a way a continuation of how I had lived in the NICU. Um, So we lost our nursing 
for about six weeks our night nursing for Jack. And so my husband and I were splitting the nights. He would stay up until three in the morning. I would get up at three just to make sure that he was okay. Um, from three to 9 a.m., there's not a whole lot to do. And once I had exhausted all of the Netflix holiday movies, it was right around <laughs> Christmas. I was like, okay, what am I going to do with my time? And I felt this sense that if I didn't try to write down what I was feeling, I would either go crazy or it would, it would never be something I could tell God. And I did, I think at my core, want to tell God about it. And so this felt like enough of an indirect way to do that, at least at that time, before I could really pray as directly or as, as sort of forthrightly as I, as I do now. Um, so I wrote it in these funny half hour, middle of the night snippets, kind of living in the newness of a kid who has disabilities and different needs. And I don't know, something about the NICU strips you raw, you know, it, it strips you of the ability to say, I'm fine, not the temptation to say it. But I remember thinking, well, nobody's going to be fooled if I tell them I'm fine. I'm covered with milk stains. I look like I have been sleepwalking in, you know, heavy traffic or something. It's like, it's just great, right? It's crazy. And I remember really distinctly sitting in the NICU and there was a, a young mom to my left and I don't know what was going on with her daughter. Um, something more complicated, I think, than what was going on with Jack because she couldn't hold her kid at the time. And um, there were lots of tubes and there's lots of, you know, very quiet nurse conversations. And if you've been in the NICU, you kind of know that you're in this community where you can't ask who anybody is, but you kind of know everybody here is in this thing that binds us and unites us. And when I came home, I thought, man, I want to do something for that woman. I want to do something. And I don't know her name and I don't know her kid's name. And I mean, I still pray for them in the sense of, I'm like, you know, that person, God, that was sitting next to me that one time, you know, her, you know, her kid. Um, but I thought to myself, I was like, I think there are, there is a way in which, um, images and words come to me and I have this opportunity to try to describe an experience that I really wanted people to know about, even if they hadn't been there. Mm. And, uh, and then I wanted the people who had been there to feel like somebody was next to you mm -hmm. and somebody was remembering it so that you could talk about it and feel like you weren't so alone. Uh, and that's what I prayed for the book to be was to be something that somebody would read and think, I'm not so alone. Somebody else was sitting in that room with me too. Mm. That's so neat. And it is so true. We, it's bizarre how you explain it now, thinking about it like you're right. We, we, I felt like I knew these people, but I didn't know them at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I sat next to the same family for weeks. Um, 
And, and I remember, and I remember watching people take the car seat test around me. Yeah. Like, well, they're going home today, <laughs> you know, and, and, and saying like goodbye and giving them hugs. But I maybe knew their first name if, if, even yep. that, you know, and thinking like, well, we don't know anything other than we've been sitting here doing skin to skin next to each other for weeks, you know? Yeah. But it is, it's yep. such a bizarre bizarre like you said bonding but also not I don't know about well, your NICU but our NICU does like reunions oh and, yeah and every I've only been once my son is five now and I've only been once um but I was hoping to see some of the people that I did and I didn't <laughs> but I was thinking yeah oh, I would love yeah to we went back we went we've been back to the NICU not for an official reunion but we've been back a couple of times and I've seen a couple of the nurses that Jack had and that was really sweet um, but n none of the other parents, I remember that it, it's the kind of place where when an alarm went off, you just saw like every head kind of looking around like, okay, which, which person is it? Which kid is it? Is it mine? And still feeling like if I closed my eyes and thought about it long enough, I can bring back the smell of hand sanitizer and the sound of the pump behind somebody's behind a screen pumping or somebody's yeah. doing skin to skin behind the screen. And there's the yellow alarm and then there's the red alarm. And if you hear the red alarm, you're going to hear footsteps coming because you know, something's, something's wrong. Uh, it's a very strange world, but once you've been there, it's like you've, you've been to a place, you know, and yeah. everybody, who's been there gets it. It has. I, when we took Weston home the first night, I was terrified. I did not like, I had not, I was waiting for that day, obviously since I had him. But when it came, I was, I told, I remember telling Joey, like, I am the worst mom. I don't want to take him home. There's no nurses coming home with me. There's no, he doesn't have his little, like you said, his tubes on him. He doesn't have his alarms. I don't know if he's breathing or not. Like I need the number yep. to tell yep. me. I was terrified. I don't think I slept for weeks because my hand was like laying on his chest the whole time because I couldn't, I could not do it. I thought without all of the monitors, it was 100%. terrifying. Absolutely. And I wonder too, because you know, I, my second son, we had full term, so he, he got to come home with us and I still had that like sense of, I was terrified. So I wonder how much of that is just being a new mom and just having a new baby. Yeah. But how did you, how did you like kind of let those dreams and expectations go? Cause I know that was hard for me when, when Weston was in the NICU and I thought, no, I don't get to experience those first nights. Like I thought I was going to, or, and Weston didn't breastfeed because he had had issues. And so we didn't get to nurse the way that I thought. And mm -hmm. I pumped, but he never actually latched. And so all of these things that I thought, like I had to kind of, tell myself for a while, I kept thinking like, I'm a horrible mom. And I, I let, like, I feel like mom guilt took a whole other level with that. Mm -hmm. Cause I thought like, and you had said in your book at some point, like, was it something that I did? Yeah. And I, I kept thinking that like, is this something that I did? I don't know where I kind of connect that, but how do you, I did reach a point where I let the expectations go, but how did you come to the point of realizing like, these might be expectations that are not realistic. So letting those go, but also kind of grieving them in a way, because I, I needed to grieve them a little bit. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I really distinctly remember walking down the NICU hallway one 
um, one afternoon and we had just had the conversation about getting a trach for Jack and we had been really worried about it and really not wanting to do it because to me the trach even more than anything else was sort of a, a signal of like a point of no return like at that point if he has the trach and he has the g-tube there goes the hope of breastfeeding or at least even bottle feeding like working towards that right there goes all of the experiences of first this that and the other thing and here comes all of these interventions and here comes night nursing and here comes you know right so i was really resistant to even giving him a trach i was walking down the hallway and i i don't know what it means exactly to hear god in in for my, for me it's almost like the words are written across my forehead <laughs> like or inside my brain um it was like god said what you have to do is give him the drink mm. what you have that's what you have have to do. And I, I sat down in the little lounge area where there's, you know, TV playing all the pictures of the NICU babies and you know, all of that. And I thought this must be what it is to be a parent um, is to say, I'm willing to give my kid a thing. I wish I didn't have to give him. You know, I, I want to give you what you actually need, not what I wish you needed. So, because it would fulfill something for me. Mm. Um, you know, I, I have breastfed with my daughter who was born two years after Jack and it was actually remarkably freeing, um, to have had Jack first because when she nursed and it worked for her, it wasn't like, oh, all of these dreams have come true and now I'm nursing. It was like, this is what you need. I gave Jack what he needed. I give you what you need. Mm. That's the work. The work is to give you what you need. And um, I, I remember I had a birth plan. I mean, I, ha I had many versions of a birth plan. I had like the one that I had when I found out I was pregnant and sort of thought, Ooh, I'm going to like have aromatherapy candles and <laughs> massage and like dim lighting and I'm going to make a playlist. Um, and I had the birth plan that was much more like, okay, I need a birthing ball and I need the three stages of labor and how long am I going to wait? You know, am I not going to do the epidural and you know, it's the sort of, I think there's a narrative of sort of taking back your birth from sort of hospital intervention. Mm -hmm. I had that birth plan. Then I had the dear God, let him be okay. Birth plan. That one we followed. So that was <laughs> good. <laughs> that one won. Um, but I want my kids when they eventually find these podcasts and all of these things on the internet, cause you know, they're going to hear me talking about them. Mm -hmm. um, I want them to know the day they were born the life that we had together in their youngest days was exactly what it was supposed to be. Mm. There was, there is no way in which it could disappoint me now because it's what they needed. And what do I want more as their mom than to give them what they need? Yeah. And it took God really telling me that, like telling me that that's what, Jack needed and that that's what I was tasked with as his mom was to 
do that. I think to release the longing for a certain kind of perception of myself as a mom and longing for a certain set of Instagram photos of myself as a mom and the approval of other moms. Mm -hmm. And I still struggle with that. I mean, I still struggle with wanting everybody to have matching outfits for Christmas the matching pajama thing, the <laughs> yeah. cute professional photo that's like, Merry Christmas from the aunties. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I want all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I think, but is that what my kids need? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if it doesn't happen, like that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, lo- I love that, that everyone's needs are different and knowing that as a parent, I mean, it's so it's so obvious, but it's so not in the same sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it makes total sense. But even thinking about it, like as me, as a daughter of God, thinking like the things that he gives me that I need are so different than the things that he gives you. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But I don't see that all the time. I don't make that connection. And I don't, I have moments where I think, well, this person's life looks like it's going great. And this is happening in my life and you haven't come through God. And I wonder if he's just thinking like, well, I did, it just looks different and you just aren't looking for your version, you know? And that, like you just said, your needs, they were different than hers. That's, that's beautiful. And I love to, one of my favorite lines in the book that you had put was, you know, when you were in contractions and you had said, I know you, you're mine, you belong Mm -hmm. to me. When I read that line, I actually, I actually thought, and I went back and I read Psalm 139 and I was thinking Mm -hmm. like, okay, God, like you've said that about me, right? All of those Mm -hmm. things you said exactly about me. I know you, you're mine, you belong to me. And, and I, that that was one of the moments that brought me to tears because I was like, okay, like I can rest in that. And knowing that like Jack can rest in that, in your family, knowing that that's his spot, Mm -hmm. he belongs, you know, Mm -hmm. he is yours. That's what we all want and crave and desire, right? Is that relationship where we know we belong. And that's, yeah, that's beautiful in the way that you've described Mm -hmm. that. And even like tying in with the needs and knowing like, we have to know them in order to know what their needs are. Right. And we can love someone as much as we know them. So making that like connection of, I know you and that's why I love you. Yeah. Well, I keep thinking, you know, there's a temptation. There are so many temptations to compare. And I think it's a well often said thing that comparison is a thief of joy, things like that. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I, I find so freeing about, in a way, having had Jack first and this radically different kind of parenting being my first experience, was that the advice you sometimes get that's like, well, you just need to get to know your kid. Is your kid colicky? Is your kid, you know, does your kid need X, Y, or Z? Was true in such an obvious and almost... Uh, dramatic way with Jack that then when I had my daughter who doesn't have those kinds of differences, I, I was still thinking in that way. And I think it protected and kind of freed me from some of the temptations to compare her to other kids, her age or to other people who had had kids around, you know, the same time or what were our experiences like, because it was like, well, for Jack, what did I do? I figured out what he needed and it wasn't like I had a whole lot to compare him to. So I just got to figure out what, 
June, my daughter needs. And I feel like that's true for all kids and all parents, but it's just so, it's not as obvious as you're saying, honestly, because we think our experiences are probably similar Mm -hmm. and sometimes they are. And then sometimes it's like, but actually this is your kid and you could really just trust your gut because you know them (laughs) better than the blogs do. Yes. (laughs) I'm that person that as soon as something goes on, I'm like Googling it. My husband's always like, do not open Google because it's, I know, never proved for us. A hundred percent. I do the same thing. (laughs) Uh, So you kind of said a little bit, but I wanted to kind of, um, to kind of like tie up and kind of ask, what are you hoping that Jack if he reads the book someday, what are your hopes that he thinks on the book as he reads over the story? And, and have you kind of, does he know anything about like your thoughts of your timing or is, I know he's still really young and in that, but yeah. do you have any like thoughts on if you'll share your story with him like that or? Yeah, I hope two things. One, I hope it is, it is obvious to him that this story is not my attempt to tell the story of his life. It's my attempt to tell something about me Mm. in which he is an integral and beloved and treasured part. Um, But I want him to feel a sense of independence from the story because Jack's life is Jack's life. Jack's Mm. sense of his own disabilities and his differences and the challenges and joys that those bring. I want him to tell me about them in a way. I'd love to know like, okay, what did it mean to you to have been born with these differences and then to walk through the experience of living with them and learning to adapt and fighting, you know, for access and for independence for all of those things. Um, So that's one of the things I hope. And the other would be, I hope, um, I hope he hears that what we, what we wanted more than anything was for him to be safe and, and not that we wanted him to be someone he's not, not that we wanted him to be born a particular way, but that when I was crying out to God for healing, it was because that was the way I could understand praying for his safety, praying Mm -hmm. for his well-being and his flourishing. And that the gift God gave me was to radically expand what I I knew flourishing to look like. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that Jack doesn't flourish or couldn't flourish or, or can't, but that when I prayed that Jesus would heal him, it was because I thought flourishing might require something different than what's being Mm -hmm. told to me on the ultrasound. And what God said was it doesn't Mm -hmm. flourishing in Jack's life looks like his ultrasound pictures. Mm. Um, Yeah. So he's three. We don't talk about that a whole (laughs) lot right now, (laughs) maybe in 10 years or so, but Right now we talk mostly about, he's just figuring out the relationship between the tree and the roots of the tree that are exposed and that they're like the same. So we've been talking a lot about that. Um, And we talk a lot about Daniel Tiger. So, (laughs) you know, 
my son deep things <laughs> my son is five and we have a picture up of him and he was you know his very first picture i didn't get to hold him um so his very first picture is in the NICU with all the things he has the iv on you know and all the things and i have a picture of my other son too right when he came out both of their heads but weston has like his arm up like this with the iv in and so he he's been asking a lot lately like well, what is that? At first, he thought it was a screwdriver. He wanted to know why he was with a screwdriver. <laughs> um, but he's been like, been like asking that. And so we've been ha able to have a few conversations more of like, well, mm -hmm. you know, you and Reed had different stories. You were in a different place with different people who got to love you too for the first four weeks. But, but it has been an interesting thing because sometimes he'll be like curious and other times he's just like okay all right yeah <laughs> it's a screwdriver mom you know <laughs> that's awesome but that's really neat well i am so thankful thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us tonight and i loved i cannot say enough i loved reading your book i hope that everyone goes and checks it out and reads it it's forgiving god how can they how can people connect with you like how where can they find you i know you have a blog I do. I wish I wrote on it more faithfully, but I do have a blog. Um, you can find it on my website, hillaryancy.com. Um, I'm on Instagram the most faithfully. Uh, I post, I try to post there at least once a day and I try to do those story things. I, I mean, I'm not the best of them. My stories are real awkward, but if you're here for some like real, like me gushing about this peppermint bark cake that my husband got for us that I'm about to go eat. I put that on my Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> that alone we're here for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, they need, you guys need to go follow her. I, I do follow you on Instagram and I love you post some poems and so many things that I just have been wonderful. So please go follow her and check her out. Um, Hillary Yancey for giving God. Thank you so much for making the time. I know you are incredibly busy. I can't even imagine your schedule right oh, now, but well, we're very grateful. Thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>